0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: And So, in some ways, it's almost teaching folks to be a little more in tune for how their emotions are being manipulated when they're encountering content online and less about trying to come up with some counter-mobilization for positive, because I'm not sure that there's a pathway for that that makes sense.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Dr. Kate Starbird. She is the co-founder of the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, which is dedicated to resisting strategic misinformation, promoting an informed society, and strengthening democratic discourse. Her academic research focuses on how people use social media platforms during crises, such as natural disasters, mass shootings, and lately, anti-democratic insurgencies. Uh, Lots to talk about today, Dr. Starbird. Welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: All right. Thanks for having me on.
0: We get a lot of politicians um, and, I guess, operators on the show talking about the impact of disinformation, but we've got uh, an academician here. And I want to start by asking you about, I think, a term I've heard you use, the infrastructure of disinformation. It's not just all random rumor. There are highways laid down to feed this stuff into our discourse. Can you elaborate?
1: I haven't used that term, but there's a lot of great um, studies coming out that talk about the infrastructure of disinformation. One of the things that we've been thinking about is how the social media platforms, a lot of my work looks at social media platforms and their intersection with other parts of the information ecosystem. But if we look at social media platforms, it's almost as if those networks are now wired for the spread of disinformation and not because they designed them that way. But because they were leveraged by different kinds of campaigns that eventually laid down this kind of infrastructure, you know, connected websites that share content networks of following relationships that can be repeatedly leveraged to spread mis- and disinformation. The algorithms and the platforms have been gamed in so many ways that now some of the algorithms themselves reflect um, these operations that have happened over the course of, of many years. And so we've got this integration of like how the platforms, these digital platforms work and how these tactics have taken advantage of them. And together that is this sort of like corrupted infrastructure that we can see repeatedly activating to spread false and misleading content for political and financial gain of of different sets of actors, to be honest. Can you give us
0: a concrete example of that in action, whether it's the algorithm elevating disinformation or things that in your research have jumped out at you?
1: Oh my gosh, so many cases. I mean, we could trace some of the stuff we saw in 2016, we could trace back to efforts to, you know, do follow trains in 2012 created these networks of kind of artificially inflated accounts and, and relationships between people that were kind of real people that are very politically motivated and a lot of uh, hybrid accounts that were like cyborg accounts that were part automated and, and part human operated. And, and those early operations, you know, helped to shape different kinds of, um, of following networks on, on Twitter, to be honest, it's a lot of our research is on Twitter because that's what the data we can see. Um, but we imagine similar things are now happening, like Facebook groups where um, folks have have gamed the system in some ways and and invited people into groups and and kind of grown a, a certain group around a certain set of ideas or objectives, and then the algorithms of the platforms recommend those groups or those following relationships to other users that might be you know might have retweeted one of them once or talked about something similar and all of a sudden the algorithms that don't really know what they're doing but know to find like-minded people recommend you know more of those connections and so what we see is the development of these very dense networks of uh, highly politically motivated people some of them witting, in the spread of disinformation, many of them unwitting. They don't really realize that they're part of these networks or, or they don't realize that they're being manipulated within these networks, but they're very densely connected and they can very quickly be activated to spread disinformation for for around a new campaign.
0: On the surface of things, it wouldn't seem to me that the strengthening of networks or creating super dense information networks is necessarily a bad thing. But then I I read your research and your peers' research, which suggests that these networks are really much more activated by incendiary disinformation than by the positive spread of of truth. Is that my bias coming through, or is that how it actually works in the world?
1: I think that's how people work. You know, we're much, you know, when you think of, like, what causes us to take action in the world, it's because we are emotionally activated to do that, right? And we both have thought about the disaster context before, right? But you can be activated to like volunteer or try to help when you see images of someone in pain or suffering a disaster event, but you can be activated by outrage, political outrage, To spread content, spread misinformation and disinformation um, using some of the same kind of emotional psychological processes. And so, what we see in online spaces is that content that emotionally activates us, that's sensational and interesting is more likely to spread because we're more likely to spread it. And so folks that want to manipulate us can take advantage of that. And then the social media systems, it gets into these cycles where they just keep giving us more and more and more of that content because that's the stuff that spreads the most and they want to keep us activated and engaged.
0: How accountable should we hold the platforms themselves? I mean, what you seem to be describing is is a platform that is a victim of its own, out-of-control algorithm, but they control the algorithm, right?
1: Yeah, and I think we have to say platforms here. I think we're seeing similar kinds of things happen on all sorts of different kinds of platforms, certainly Facebook and Twitter. um, We've got a lot of documentation of things happening there, but it's happening on TikTok, YouTube, and certainly on the long tail of smaller platforms as well. And it's even happening on platforms that don't have algorithms that are all just, you know, people forwarding things and don't have algorithmic recommendations. So places like WhatsApp and other other places also have disinformation problems. And so we can't purely tie this um, to the algorithms. However... We know that there are places where, where the algorithms or what gets recommended to us from in these platforms um, certainly play a role. As do our own choices about what we engage with and what we pass along. In terms of like, are the platforms responsible? I think there's an early point in the development of the technology where. They didn't necessarily know that there were toxicities. Folks may have been telling them that they were there, but they're prioritizing different kinds of things, and they had some sort of deniability on some of that responsibility. But I think we're no longer in that place. I think the platforms know that they have problems. They're working on those problems. They're putting resources into those problems. And they also have people that are making choices that privilege you know, financial gain or other kinds of things over taking some of the harder decisions to address some of those problems. And so... Um, Certainly, I would say that they are responsible now for how we move forward, even as a lot of the toxicities that we're seeing now are things that have developed over a long period of time. Even before they were aware of of some of these problems, some of the people that were gaining influence that we still see being influential in, in the spread of disinformation have been gaining that influence by gaming these systems for a decade, right? So yes, they're responsible, but even the actions they take now can't just like, how do we fix this going forward? They have to start thinking about how do we address the problems that have been here all along and what they mean for this moment right now.
0: How much faith do you put in, in their efforts to tackle the problems that they have created? I, I guess I'm asking, is it realistic to expect a corporation with shareholders to elevate ethical and moral obligations above shareholder value?
1: <laughs> well, that's that's a question of capitalism right here. I don't know if we can take all of that on in, in one place, but certainly um, there is you a- You have
0: written about the need for legislative frameworks, that it can't just be left to them.
1: That's true. I think we do have to put some pressure on the platforms from different directions. And I also am very cognizant of like some of the concerns around freedom of expression uh, and some of the concerns around, okay, we may be trying to address- mis and disinformation and how we define it on a platform right now, but how will that be used in four years or eight years or 20 years here? How will that be used in other parts of, of the world where, where they may have a different definition of what those things mean? So I, I realize it's very complex, but I think you're right that at the end of the day, no matter how many good people are working in within these platforms to try to address some of these problems, there are other concerns like you know their financial bottom line that sometimes are in tension with the, you know, concerns of having healthy democratic discourse on those platforms. And so in part, it's government pressure, but it also may be pressure from advertisers, pressure from users, and pressure from within, from the people that are working there. Maybe the next generation of labor rights, especially in the tech industry, is people who work for those companies demanding that the the platforms work differently.
0: What have you seen... Most effective in this area, I mean, I've heard rumors, and maybe it's misinformation, that one of the main drivers of Facebook reforms wasn't fear of the legislative hammer; it was it was their own employees saying enough is enough.
1: I think that's one lever of potential change um, in this industry. It's probably not enough. There are always you can always find another engineer, but they might not be as good as the one you're losing, who cares about these things. But I do think um, that that is one one avenue of pressure that may be productive and maybe more productive in some ways than some others. But I think it's been a combination of things. There's never, you know, there's no simple solution to any of this. It's usually like a combination of different things, whether, you know, look at the whole problem in general, you know, it's not just the platforms, it's other kinds of things as well. But even just within the platforms, yeah, it's gonna be, you know, Employees saying that they're not going to do things in that way, and demanding the platforms um, do better. It'll be government regulation of certain kinds, maybe just more transparency. It's going to be journalism continuing to highlight things, but hopefully doing in a way that's that's constructive and and doesn't doesn't overly sensationalize, you know, the criticism either, right? So there's a little bit of tension there for the platforms where. You know, every time they make a change, they get, you know, piled on for the change that they've made. And so they can feel like, you know, they can't win in there. So I think, you know, some really thoughtful, um, critical journalism is part of that solution as well. Um, But I don't think it's one thing, but certainly having the employees put some pressure on the platforms, I think is part of what's going to make things better.
0: One area that would defy any of the solutions we have been talking about is the, the rise of platforms hosted in countries that are unfriendly to democracy do you worry about that um, you see recently the Chinese and Russian governments um, entering into into agreements to create their own internet um, for all of the the attention that we pay to to social media platforms hosted in liberal democracies, and for all of their misbehaviors, I think there is a the specter of a totally different ecosystem emerging that would be immune to any of that pressure.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll have its own <laughs> its own sets of uh, of issues around surveillance and different kinds of things. Instead of being surveilled by corporations for advertisements, you'll be surveilled for other for other kinds of. of Purposes, um, you know. I think this is definitely a concern. Even as we've been, you know, talking about, we got these few really big companies. They need to do things differently, and as they make changes, a lot of their users are going to other places, in part to get away from some of the, some of the, what they call censorship and other kinds of things on, on platforms like Facebook and Twitter and other and YouTube as well. My sense is there from the research is, is that we do see deplatforming platforming of, of individuals. So when the platforms are taking actions um, and those individuals can move to these long tail platforms, but they lose a lot of their audiences as they do. And even if their audiences go with them, they lose the opportunity to recruit new people into their, into their conversations because these other platforms just don't have the same kind of reach. And one of the things we're perceiving with our current information system, we don't know if it's, I don't know if it's 100% of the problem or 2% of the problem, somewhere in between that, is the scale at which a certain piece of information can reach so many people without much moderation, and that scale doesn't map to some of these long tail platforms right now. If another platform that's hosted another place with a completely different set of norms and rules and values becomes that big. Uh, and becomes that big in terms of like US usership, (laughs) or usership from from other folks that are in the current democratic world, I think that creates a different, a different set of challenges. But right now, um, I think the worry more is like people moving into the smaller platforms and, and those becoming, you know, places of extremism and toxicity. And that's absolutely in our future, but a slightly changed situation, because they'll have a harder time recruiting and a harder time reaching so many people so fast, uh, which is a little bit, I think, of what's happening right now, while Facebook and Twitter can still be leveraged for the, the spread of propaganda.
0: You've used the term a couple of times, long tail platforms. Can you just explain that?
1: Yeah, long tail. For me, I'm just talking about, um, you know, we pretend that it's very democratic and everyone, um, you have all these different opportunities to engage, but most engagement happens around a few different uh, accounts. in with you're looking at inside a platform, like there's a a small number of accounts get most of the retweets, right? Um, Similarly for platforms, a small number of platforms have most of the users. And then there's a ton of other platforms that have, you know, much smaller amounts of users. And then we call that the kind of long tail. Um, It's the smaller platforms that have fewer users, but there are many and diverse platforms for different purposes uh, in that long tail.
0: I imagine that it is in that long tail where most of the radicalization occurs? Before I go with a couple of the questions related to that, is that assumption fair?
1: I think radicalization can happen in different places. The recruiting happens on the bigger platforms, and then they may go into that long tail, into a a 4chan or an 8chan or gab or um, something else into spaces that become more radical. So yes, I think that's a pretty good way of describing the situation. Although we do also see some radicalization happening in sort of Facebook groups or other sort of more insulated groups within a larger platform.
0: Is it in the public interest to try to keep more people in the, I guess, whatever the opposite of the long tail platforms are, the the mainstream platforms, where they actually have the resources to intercept some of these radicalization efforts and in some of the the misinformation campaigns. I mean, what risks do you see associated with the flight of people to these long-tail platforms where radicalization is so much more a part of the, uh, the attraction?
1: Yeah, I don't know how to answer this because I don't think I know the answer to it. There's some great arguments for breaking up the big platforms related to fighting monopolies and more diversity of ideas, these kinds of things. And often when I look at a lot of those proposals, I agree with the premise of like, yeah, it's, it's good. You know, it'd better be better to have people spread out. But then there's this, you know, little lingering piece of me that, but the disinformation problem doesn't necessarily get better if we spread people out on different platforms. The only thing I would come back to is that because the, they'll be in different places, it may be harder for things to move so fast and to move so many people. And it may add a little bit of friction to the sort of uh, intentional spread of content across different groups. And also recruiting may be more difficult if things are are spread. So again, like your smaller spaces, where if people end up in them, they can become more radicalized in those spaces, but there may be fewer people that end up in those spaces in a more sort of compartmentalized Social media environment, but I don't think we know the answer. Like you know, we're learning a lot of things that, as we go after the changes have already been made. And be like, oh gosh, how did we get here? Oh, that, we made that decision, and here we are. Um, so I don't know if that'll be a better world or, or a worse world. But I'm not sure we have much control over whether or not we're going there, um, because I do see more and more movement, especially from folks who are invested in sort of the political mis- manipulation and radicalization processes they do seem to be moving into into these long tail platforms hello everyone
0: Thanks so much for checking it out. You've talked about the power of um, the emotional reaction to to motivate people. Anger is a, an incredible motivator. Fear is an incredible motivator. Is there anything on the the positive end of the spectrum that can be as powerful in pulling people back to being rational actors? Is there even one successful campaign of a a positive? information campaign that spreads as virally as these anger and fear-driven misinformation campaigns.
1: It's interesting. We've seen so many, so many positive things come out of the internet that are so similar to what we're seeing now with misinformation, disinformation, and this sort of political outrage machine. So if we look back, my own research, again, used to focus on Uh, social media during disasters and we could see people use social media to like draw attention to to a humanitarian crisis in Haiti help to to fundraise help to find volunteers who would come together and eventually go there to help I've seen some of the best of human behavior organized on social media in response to to crisis events and and other kinds of things as well we've seen people come together in all sorts of interesting and unique ways to do amazing things and so the, the thing is, is it's easy to activate, to emotionally activate someone there. Not easy, but like we can see emotional activation happening for positive. We can see emotional activation happening for these kinds of negative things. But I'm not sure we know how to counter the emotional activation that's happening for the negative things. There's not like, oh, there's a positive that's going to pull them in the other direction. It's almost like we have to encourage people to be less emotionally activated And to be more thoughtful about how they're engaging with this content that's made, you know, it's designed to emotionally activate them.
0: I think that's exactly what I'm getting at because it it feels like in contrast to a campaign to generate a response around a, a natural disaster or something like that, the political arena is fundamentally different in that it's oppositional by nature and most responses in that political arena are going to be opposing someone else so i guess you're right the the challenge to misinformation has to be to dial down the emotion not to create an equally powerful counter emotion
1: indeed yeah and cuz when we're emotionally activated whether it's it's to try to help in a crisis event or whether it's emotionally activated around political stuff we're very vulnerable to spreading misinformation and and in fact my team's research comes into this space initially studying rumoring and misinformation in crisis events, because we began to recognize that people who were responding online were very vulnerable to spreading misinformation about the crisis, sometimes by people who were trying to manipulate them. And often just, you know, because it was accidental misinformation um, because when we're all caught in something, we're excited, we're activated. This is a time where we'd shut down that part of our brain that, that does the the verification, or we make these choices that are, well, it's better for me to spread this just in case it's true um, or I, I want to spread this because I'm, I want to show people that I'm part of this thing and it's not as important whether or not it's true because there's these other reasons that I'm sharing it. And that, and that happens in, in both of these different kinds of contexts. And we can you know, think about how to make people more aware that when you're in that excited state, this is where you can actually do you know, some damage to the things that you care about when we really look at the research on the spread of misinformation in online spaces, we've talked about how it's hard for people to determine whether or not something's true. And that that's true. Or we need to, we need to do a better job teaching critical thinking. Okay. This is probably true too, but it turns out that most people when they're engaging in political discourse they don't bring their critical thinking skills to unpack and tear down the things they like. They only take their critical thinking skills to unpack and tear down the things they don't like. And so until we can actually motivate them to bring that skepticism and that critical thinking to the stuff that's politically aligned with them and actually, you know, vet that stuff, it does no good to, to teach media literacy, right? So media literacy isn't, it can't just be about. Media literacy can't just be about figuring out whether something's true or false. It has to be about teaching people when to bring in our skills for figuring out whether things are true and false and to be more likely to bring it up towards content that we like, that aligns with what we believe. That's the content we need to be vetting the most. And unfortunately, um, a lot of us don't do that when we engage with content online.
0: Why? In the same vein, are conspiracy theories so comforting to people in trying to make sense? I won't guess as to why, um, but you've studied this, and conspiracy theories have an ability to propagate in ways that the mundane truth does not. Why is that?
1: In some ways, conspiracy theories are sort of an outgrowth of the natural sense-making process That we go through when we're trying to make sense of, you know, anything in the world, especially a crisis event, but political discourse, uh, pandemic, potential climate change, like we want to crises that we're experiencing as societies and, and we, and we come together and we try to make sense of things and conspiracy theories are sort of an outgrowth of this sort of natural sense-making process and are kind of like a corrupted version where they're not starting from like, okay, here's the evidence and and let's try to figure out what's going on. They start with like a couple of presumed theories about the world and then they try to assemble that evidence to, to fit that theory. And so they start off with like, things aren't what they seem. There's some, you know, powerful people, a small set of powerful people who are trying to pull the strings of, of what's happening in the world. And they're trying to pull one over on us. And I'm going to take these pieces of information that I have and assemble them in some way to fit that theory. Uh, and so that's what we see over and over again in, in the crisis space, where instead of like trying to come to terms of what's happening, people you know, assemble evidence to try to prove that things aren't as they seem and that, that someone else you know some specific entity is pulling the strings of world events and and why why are they so attractive there's so many reasons right like um, it's the reason like we'd rather watch a thriller on television than like read a book about what happened yesterday in some mundane environment right like conspiracy theories are entertaining effective conspiracy theories draw on Previous conspiracy theories that we believed already or believed a little bit of. They uh, also often make us feel smart or make us feel like we have special knowledge that other people don't have. Um, that can be one a- a appeal of conspiracy theories. And often they try to take like complex things and random things in the world and they try to put a pattern over them and an explanation and, and assign a a simple cause or a villain, it, may, it might be a complex story, but there's usually behind the complex story of a conspiracy theory is a simplistic idea that there's a certain set of villains that are causing, you know, bad things in the world. And often the world is a lot more complicated than that. Um, but conspiracy theories help us try to, you know, put patterns onto that that help us make sense of things. And even if it's, if it's not the truth, it might be more comforting to us than the truth.
0: With that I guess historical appreciation for the recurrence of conspiracy theories. Do you see the QAnon adherence as uniquely dangerous, or just you know the the reiteration of conspiracy theorists going back to the you know to time immemorial? Um, are we overreacting?
1: I have no idea if we're overreacting. I've I thought I was overreacting in 2012, or 2013, the first time I was doing research and saw some conspiracy theories, and we were like, ah, we're probably overreacting this. Let's not even put it in the paper. We don't really want to talk about this. Let's talk about the other rumors we're seeing and not the conspiracy theory, because it just, you know, we don't want to draw attention to it. It seems like such a small, small thing. Um, Certainly, we're in a different point now, and QAnon certainly has a lot of size,
0: can you summarize it? Because it's wildly entertaining, as disturbing as it is.
1: I don't think I can summarize it. I don't. I don't think, <laughs> okay. I don't think you know. It's it's an amalgam. You know. It, it's a combination of so many different conspiracy theories at once, and it adapts as any cult does to new information that doesn't have you, you know. A lot of cults have like, oh, this will be the end days, and then the end day is not the end day. There's another day, and then they've got to adapt to something different because their prophecies don't come true. So QAnon has had so much change over the course of its, what is it, four or five years old now? It's had so much change over the course of those years that it's difficult to simply summarize. But the things that are most interesting about QAnon are this sort of participatory nature of it where um, initially uh, this person who called themselves Q, they were putting out um, these clues and then allowing these online crowds to try to make sense of the clues. And what the online crowds would do was come up with some you know, explanation for the clue. And it was either a prediction of something or an explanation of something else. And so they were like creating the mythology it was this participation, participatory creation of their own mythology. And it was also like a game that they were all playing together and they were coming together and connecting. Um, we could see when I looked at the data, a lot of people, um, it looked like an online gaming exercise and they were all kind of playing together, working together to come up with what the clue meant. And then once they had a good theory for the latest clue, they would try to, you know, work together to spread it as far as they could. And, And so they had these different kinds of tasks that they would take part in. so it's a massive multiplayer game with this ideology that brings together just about every conspiracy theory we've ever heard of all into one umbrella. And uh, with this idea initially that there was some massive pedophile ring all over the world Initially connected to the U.S. Democrat politicians, but that got adapted for other other contexts. Uh, and then that Donald Trump was going to court-martial all these people, and then they would be, I think, publicly hung or something. I mean, I think it was you know some pretty kind of dark ideology. And then all, they kept predicting that these different things would come true, and that certain things he said was were signals that this that this thing was happening. I mean, I can't even get my head wrapped around the whole thing, to be honest. But, and I'm not sure that even the, the adherents could um, because it was constantly changing and being updated. But um, it doesn't work without the internet because the internet is what brought people together at such scale. And so when you think about like, are we overreacting? The thing that makes us nervous about QAnon is that the scale of it is uh, of a level that we haven't seen ever in terms of reaching that many people so fast. We can see religions develop and over time eventually <laughs> gain, you know, foothold and, and spread really far. But here we have this sort of like conspiracy-based kind of religious movement that's just expanded all over the world extremely quickly.
0: I know you're not a historian by training, but can you think of examples of of societies? in the past successfully challenging these kinds of movements and successfully depolarizing or de-radicalizing massive shares of, of their populations without violence, that is.
1: I don't know. I, I can't think of something similar (laughs) enough. um, And when I can right as you're asking me to, I'm thinking of things in the, and the ending is very dark um, for a lot of, a lot of those. I do think it's, I don't think we can reduce QAnon to a cult, but I think understanding the psychology of cults can be helpful in thinking about some adherence of QAnon. And often they don't end well um, for the folks that are most deeply connected to them. I think one hope is here in an online environment that the connections might not be as deep as they would be for people that are together physically as part of these things. So I, I think there may be, something different there. I mean people always make that accusation like activism isn't the same online. it's not as strong. people don't really know each other. Perhaps there's some hope there in that a lot of this is could perhaps be disrupted by other kinds of interpersonal interactions with people in their in their physical worlds. Um, but I don't know, I don't think history gives us a lot of great examples for how this might go in part because it's such a different moment in terms of the numbers of people and how they're connecting.
0: In getting ready for this interview, I went down a few rabbit holes, but one of them got me thinking about the the emergence of new technologies and, and how massive adoption is always disruptive to the social order. And, you know, I, I read about the printing press and the challenges to Catholic orthodoxy that that led to, um, which, you know, on one hand, makes you want to believe that we've been here before. We'll get through it. Technological upheaval is is cyclical and and it's just part of um, the evolution of human societies. On the other hand, a lot of these stories end with massive bloodshed, like the the religious wars across Europe. Uh, so I don't know what the question in that is, but do you have a um A prediction, I guess, of of how this latest technological upheaval will end.
1: I tend not to predict things, um, but I I agree that our observations of history suggest that these kinds of disruptions can lead to bloodshed and upheaval of of social organization. I'm hopeful that that's not where we're headed. I think we have the benefit of, of being able to look back at history. I think we have different sense of incentives and and we are connected in different ways that could perhaps help uh, alleviate that, even though our connections um, cause some of these issues as well. But um, so I'm hopeful that that's not exactly where we're headed. But I do think we're in a moment of of disruption, and how long that moment lasts and what comes out the other side, I don't think we know.
0: Well, I, I hate ending things on a bad note, so um, <laughs> I wasn't intending to go here, but. Another rabbit hole I I went down was uh, reading about some of your your family lineage and your oh my goodness. if I'm um not mistaken your grandfather served on the same Olympic team with Jesse Owens at the 36 Olympics in Berlin is that is that true?
1: One correction both of my grandfathers were on the modern pentathlon team in 1936 so they were both That's there.
0: incredible. Yeah. Did did you ever get them to to share stories of that, of marching in the in the U.S. team opening parade in front of a review stand uh, with Adolf Hitler at the top of it.
1: Yeah, I, I so my father's father died when I was uh, like eight years old, so I, I did not have a chance to talk to him much about it. My mother's father, he decided what he talked about when, um, and so we didn't ask a lot of questions, but I do remember one year he was visiting us and we were watching the Olympics, you know, and the coverage was going on. It must've been a commercial break. And he said, well, I knew a great man once. And of course, whenever he talked, we would all stop. We turned off the television and he said, "I knew a great man once, Jesse Owens, And he went on to tell his story of meeting Jesse Owens on the boat and how that sort of changed his whole um perception of race uh, and and really altered his outlook on a lot of things. And um he had just the greatest amount of respect for Jesse Owens. So uh, and I, we as kids, we just remember that of being, you know my grandfather didn't tell a lot of stories, but when he did, we all listened, and that was one of the few that I remember.
0: And that was the boat across the Atlantic. I take it.
1: Yeah, they were on there for several days. They had to train, and they got to know each other and have conversations. And I think, uh, and then once they get there, of course, it's it's 1936 in Berlin, and there's all sorts of interesting things happening. My grandfather wrote letters home that I um, own now, but I have not yet digitized. At some point in my life, I plan to to digitize and and put those out into the world.
0: Well, I hope you do. Um, That's extraordinary. I'm glad I asked. Um, Dr. Starbird, it's been great having you on uh, on Bird the Boats. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: All right. Thank you so much. And thanks for the great questions.
0: Thanks again to Kate for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at at Kate Starbird. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.